From historical locations found on a map to the lesser known areas found maybe even in your own hometown, history leaves shadows that people in the present can still see. Let's find out their stories together on this episode of Historically Haunted. everyone and welcome to Historically Haunted. I am your host Ariel. Today I will be taking you on a road trip to the most haunted campgrounds in California. But first I just wanted to ask how is everyone doing? I am now well over a month into my quarantine slash lockdown and I have only been outside for essential items and to work at the school I work at and I think I'm doing okay relatively speaking. I celebrated my birthday last week and it was weird. I normally go out to one of my favorite restaurants for my birthday, but being at home, I made the best of it. My family was nice and they decorated the house in a friend's theme for me from what we had just laying around the house. And we made gourmet hamburgers and played some games together. So it was actually really nice. So thank you everyone who wished me happy birthday. I really appreciated it. I also wanted to thank all of my amazing listeners who have reached out to me to check on me during this time. I hope that you are all are doing okay and that you are staying healthy. I hope that you all enjoyed uh, my last episode, which was under my new name, Historically Haunted. I hope that gave you a good feel about the direction that my show is going to be taking from now on. And I'm going to continue to grow and experiment with all my episodes. So I would love some feedback since I'm doing this show for you guys after all. Let me know uh, what you like, what you don't like. And if you would like me to change anything, you can send me a message or leave a comment on my Facebook or Instagram pages at Historically Haunted. And I also have a new email that you can send your own personal paranormal encounters so I could do a listener episode. Uh, My new email is historicallyhaunted.313 at gmail.com. I played with that forever. I could not find a way for it just to let me do Historically Haunted. So I had to put numbers in there. So, but it is what it is. So if you have a personal paranormal story, please share it with me and I'd love to talk about it on my show. I don't know about you, but I have been inside way too long. That's why I thought we could all use a camping trip, even if it's just a virtual one. But this is not your average camping trip. This one comes with tragic tales and shadows hiding just beyond the campfire light. But first, let's kick it off with our monstrous moments and then dive into our paranormal toolkit. Stories of encounters from strange beasts lurking deep in the forests, on snowy mountaintops, and in dark caves have been told throughout the generations, turning to legend. But what if I told you that many of these creatures are still spotted today? I call these Monstrous Moments, and I invite you to listen to this week's Monstrous Encounter. On the outskirts of Los Angeles, California, lies the small community of Ventura County, backed right up against the vast wilderness of Los Padres National Forest, along with many other wildlife preserves in the area. There are lots of places for beasts to hide. One beast has terrorized the small town of Santa Paula since World War II. The name of this beast is the Billywhack Monster, named for the old dairy that he now hides in. He is described as a 10-foot-tall, half-man, half-goat hybrid with big ram horns on the top of his head. It is described as very muscular and covered head-to-toe with whitish silver fur. The legend of the Billywhack monster begins in the 1930s at a dairy farm. The Billywhack Dairy Farm in Santa Paula was built by August Rubble, and at the time it was built, it was state-of-the-art. He even had speakers for music to be able to be pumped in so that they could play happy music while the cows were being milked. The belief back then was that a happy and calm cow would produce more milk. It worked perfectly until the Great Depression came and sadly the dairy lost its money and fell into disrepair. Or at least that is the story. If you ask the conspiracy theorists, the dairy might have been a front for a more sinister activity that was being performed by the United States government. At this time, the United States intelligence was informed by spies that the Nazi party was trying to develop super soldiers. 
This, in turn, made the United States of America ramp up all kinds of experiments for warfare. Many secret projects began to crop up all over the country, and with everyone being so secretive, this, of course, gave this small town something to talk about when strange things began to happen in their area. The OSS stood for the Office of Strategic Services and was the precursor to what we know as today as the CIA. The OSS was in charge of wartime intelligence during World War II. According to legend, the owner of the dairy farm was a member of the OSS. After the failed attempt at the dairy farm, he let the OSS use it for secret experiments. The dairy farm today is said to have a network of tunnels under it and secret rooms inside. So if that is fact, then it is not hard to believe that the dairy farm that was a failed attempt might have been a front all along for it to be used as a secret base for experiments. At least that's what the conspiracy theorists say anyway. The main experiment that is believed to have been done and tested at the dairy farm was the creation of super soldiers, but the project went horribly wrong. It is said that once they created what they thought would be the perfect super soldier, it was apparent that it was nothing like they expected. The legend goes that the beast woke up and attacked the men at the facility, killing many, and then escaped into the wilderness. Now the billywhack monster is said to hide inside the tunnels system underneath the old dairy. Many teenagers go up there and they try to tempt fate by trying to find the beast. And once they do, they are chased away by the monster. He has been known to throw massive boulders at people who get too close to his den. He also chases them through the woods and has attacked cars on the old abandoned roads by smashing them with his fists. Many sightings of this beast had made it into the local newspapers for years, but the sightings began to fizzle out by the 60s. In 1964, a pair of hikers reported that they were being stalked by a massive beast with large horns as they hiked throughout the Aliso Canyon. The last known sighting of this beast was believed to have been seen in 2007 when a group of teenagers went out to the abandoned ranch where there were two old 1960s-style school buses left to decay. The group thought it was a perfect spot to hide and drink some beer. The sun had just set and they just had began drinking when suddenly something began banging on the very end of the school bus. It was so loud and so violent, it actually shook the old school bus. Petrified, the teens hid underneath the old seats until it stopped. One of the boys decided that he had to go to the bathroom, so he jumped out of the bus and the group heard the sound of heavy footsteps chasing after him. Terrified, he then ran back inside the bus and the banging began to start again, but this time there was a very deep growl with the bangs. Once the banging had stopped, the group sprinted to their car and took off back to town. No one knows for certain why the Billywhack monster have suddenly stopped. Maybe he died of old age. Whatever the reason, the Billywhack monster sounds like a monstrous moment I would not want to have. Did you know that rating and reviewing your favorite podcast shows on iTunes is one of the best ways to help others find the show? Also, sharing the podcast with your friends and family will help spread the word that Historically Haunted is out there and waiting to be listened to. Please go to my website, historicallyhaunted.net, for more ways to support the show, like links to my Patreon page and more. Over our history, humans have used several techniques to try to contact the dead. Today, ghost hunters use various technologies to try to record proof of the paranormal. I got curious as to what is inside these paranormal toolkits, so come with me as I open it up and see what's inside. Now that ghost hunting shows are a popular choice again, thanks to many new shows with old favorites like The Return of Ghost Hunters with Grant Wilson as the team leader, Ghost Nations featuring three from the Ghost Hunters old team, Kindred Spirits featuring Adam and Amy from the OG Ghost Hunters team, we are again seeing technology used to try to communicate with spirits. While they have had many new items added to the toolkit, I thought we would discuss an old favorite, the EMF detector. The, what some would say, normal purpose of the EMF detector is to measure the amount of electromagnetic field in an area. This tool comes in handy when you think you might have an electrical problem in your home. The EMF detector detects fields of moving electrically charged objects, like cables or appliances. 
Low EMF is relatively harmless, but if you are constantly in contact with high EMF, it can cause strange things to happen to your body. High EMF has been known to cause headaches, trouble sleeping, depression, fatigue, lack of concentration, memory changes, hallucinations, dizziness, and something called dysteria, and that means that you have this painful, achy, itchy sensation on your body. Sometimes it creates a rash and sometimes it doesn't. We are surrounded by low levels of EMF every day. But it is when it gets too high and you are around it all the time that you begin to have problems. So what does all this have to do with ghosts? Well, first of all, most ghost hunters like to use an EMF detector to get a baseline reading of the area that they just entered, especially when they enter an area that has the most reported paranormal activity. If it's high in EMF, some of those spirits that people are seeing could just be hallucinations or when people report feeling a creepy sensation, they could just be very sensitive to EMF or the EMF in the whole building or that whole area might just be too high. In that case, they would need to tell the owners so they can take necessary precautions, maybe change the wiring out completely in older buildings or put in some kind of a system to block EMF from entering where people work. But if the EMF is low throughout the home or the area the ghost hunters are investigating, it helps to rule out the idea that all of this is just in someone's head. Once that box is checked, then they use it for a different reason. For instance, since now the ghost hunters team knows that the baseline reading in the area, if the investigation is very, very low, they take the EMF detector with them to look for sudden high spikes or electrical anomalies that might occur in the area that was previously detected as low EMF, or in some cases, no EMF at all. Since the EMF detector's purpose is to find moving energy, the theory is that if you get a spike out of nowhere and then it dissipates without explanation, the theory is that you are picking up on spiritual energy and it is not from a man-made object. Normally, if you're measuring a man-made object that has energy in it, it should stay consistent and it should never go in and out and it should certainly never just disappear without explanation. Some ghost hunters use the EMF for more than just measurements. They use it as a tool to communicate. If they think that they are getting interactions from an intelligent haunting, they can begin to ask the ghost questions. For instance, if the energy shows up and goes away and keeps the pattern, they can shift from just staring at the meter watching the numbers fluctuate to saying out loud, if you are here with us, can you make the meter increase in numbers for yes and decrease for no? And this could mean that the ghost is maybe walking toward it or walking away from it or manifesting and then dissipating. The newer EMF detectors now have lights and sometimes they make noise once they get past a certain range. EMF detectors have been turned into trigger objects as well. Some ghost hunters have turned teddy bears into EMF detectors. Most teams normally use these teddy bears when they believe that there is a child spirit in the area. The most popular choice is a teddy bear called Boo Buddy, <laughs> and it is a cute teddy bear that does so much more than just detect EMF. It asks EVP questions and detects changes in EMF, temperature, movement, vibrations, and also it will respond to changes uh, that it detects by saying things like, that tickles when maybe it feels a vibration like something touches it, or it asks questions like, would you like to play with me? Many ghost hunters have got such great results with this Boo Buddy, and it also shows how technology has changed the game. Instead of needing five separate devices, you can now use one and get fantastic results. The EMF detector is a great thing to add to your paranormal toolkit. I have been inside way too long. I cannot wait until this lockdown is over so that I can go out in the woods and enjoy myself. And camping with a good ghost story is always the best way to camp if you ask me. I'm going to take you on a little tour for the ears, if you will, of the top 10 haunted campgrounds in California. So join me as we start in Southern California and make our way up north and keep an eye on that tree line. There might just be a ghost staring back at you. Did you hear that?
Lake Morena County Park is a year-round camping and fishing park. It is located 42 miles east of San Diego on the eastern slope of the Laguna Mountains and is the county's most remote reservoir. The Lake Morena area has a combination of desert, coastal, and mountain habitats. It is located very close to the Pacific Crest Trail. Popular activities include picnicking, hiking, boating, trout and bass fishing, and of course, camping. The Lake Morena is a reservoir that provides a small amount of water, about 3%, to the city of San Diego. Construction on the dam began in 1896, but there were several problems and construction was stopped in April 1898. Construction began again in May 1909 and was finally completed in 1912. During the day, the campground is said to be very peaceful. It is at night when the campground takes a dark turn. The ghosts found at this campground range from wandering spirits to downright terrifying entities. The lake itself has its own resident ghost that is a lady in white, named the Ghost of Marina Lake. She is said to be seen gliding silently around the banks of the lake. She never seems to harm any campers and never really makes eye contact or anything, but when she is seen, she just doesn't interact. She just glides off and disappears into nothing. No one knows for sure who she is, but some believe she is a murder victim from a long ago and she is waiting for her kids killer to be revealed. Feelings of being watched have been reported around the lake day or night. Children ghosts have always creeped me out, but this story takes the cape of creep factor in my opinion. If legend can be believed, then there is a ghost of a little girl named Millie. She has a tragic story with a ghastly appearance. Millie was a young girl who lived in the area in the late 1800s, and she was abused by her mother. Her mother was so evil that she even took a knife and cut the girl's mouth ear to ear because Millie would not stop crying out in pain every time she hit her. Shortly after this, Millie passed away due to her injuries brought on by her abusive mother. Now Millie has been seen by many campers over the years, and when she shows herself to campers, she has always been described as a little girl with pale skin, blonde hair, and has a bloody apron on. And yes, you can still see her bleeding, gaping mouth. She is a vengeful spirit. It is said that when you see her, it's a bad omen, and Millie has even been blamed for campers' deaths and disappearances in the area. As if that is not enough to scare the pants off of you, you might not be safe in your tent either. Campers have complained of seeing tall shadows lurking outside their tents and hearing loud footsteps and distant singing, only to look out to see absolutely nothing and no footprints. What is known as the former dam keeper's house is home to a malevolent poltergeist. According to an article in the San Diego Union, a woman claimed that she stayed in the old house in the 1980s and she was woken up in the middle of the night to find all the furniture floating off the floor. It is said that the activity has only strengthened in the whole area since this article was published. So if you go camping here, you might want to just stick to the nature walks and try not to go poking around into the paranormal world. Sometimes when you go looking for something, you might just find it staring back at you from a amongst the trees. Now that we've all been scared out of Lake Marina, I think we're gonna move on to the next spot on our list, which is Crystal Lake Camp. A place called Crystal Lake doesn't sound so bad, right? Crystal Lake Camp is found in the Los Angeles National Forest. It is one of the few open areas left in Southern California. Crystal Lake Camp is located in the San Gabriel Mountains National Monument area of the forest. Today, this camp is a first-come, first-served type of campground, so we better get there fast. But there is a tragic legend that comes with this property. When the Great Depression hit, men and women both found themselves jobless. A lot of them moved out to California to try to find new work, especially thanks to the New Deal, which was struck by Congress in the 1930s. And the purpose of it was to make new projects for there to be work for people to get a good wage. Crystal Lake Camp was used as a place to house people who were coming from all over the country looking for work and give them work. The idea was that they were kind of redoing an entire area to turn it into a nice park. They built a dancing hall. They built um, like an amphitheater. They also made it so that there were really nice camping areas for tents and uh, cars to be parked. The men and women who worked on these projects lived on site at this time. That is when this apparent tragic accident took place. Allegedly, in the 1930s, there was a bear attack. People claim that it was a grizzly bear, but many people have debunked this due to the fact that the last grizzly bear in California was officially extinct by 1924. 
However, I will say that the 1930s is not that far away from when they officially proclaimed the bear extinct. And as we all know, things do hang out in the woods for a very long time, never to be seen. Whatever you choose to believe, the story goes like this. One night after a long day's work, a man was walking toward his campsite when he suddenly heard his wife start to scream for help. He ran to her aid only to find a bear that had already killed his wife. He tried to keep it away from his children, but he and his children were all killed in the attack. Story spread quickly throughout all the other camps in the area of this attack, and the bodies were supposedly buried next to the dancing hall construction site. Today, campers claim to have strange feelings near the dancing hall area. Whispers in the dark and footsteps can be heard just out of the campfire's light reach. Also, people have claimed to see the spirit of the whole family in multiple places throughout the campground. If first come first serve rough and rugged camping isn't your thing like we just went to, how about we go next to the Fernwood Campground and Resort. Fernwood Resort is located on the central coast of California in the Big Sur Valley along with Big Sur River. It was established in 1932. It has several options for accommodations, a 12-room motel, forest cabins, tent cabins, adventure tents for you glampers fans, campsites, and RV camping. There is also a general store, a bar and grill, and yes, they even do craft coffee. This personally sounds like my kind of vacation. The resort shares the border with the Big Sur State Park, so it has easy access to many of the state park trails. Just a few miles north is Andrew Marlona State Park, which offers more hiking trails, and the Marlena Beach uh, for beach access. So it's kind of an all-around thing. You've got the river, you can easily get to trails up in the redwoods, and you have beach access. You definitely have options here because just a few miles to the south is the Julia Pfeiffer Burns State Park. It has hiking trails, again, beach access, and the Macway Falls, an amazing 80-foot waterfall that drops directly in onto the beach. I think that sounds amazing. There's even more state parks in the area to explore. Talk about excellent location for a resort. And as picturesque as this area sounds, if you are still up between 2 and 3 a.m., you might not want to look over your shoulder, for the Corn Mask Man might be watching you. An entity known as the Corn Mask Man has been terrorizing guests and locals for years in this area. The Corn Mask Man has been seen by so many people, some think it might be more of a creature or cryptid than a spirit. Many have not only claimed to see the entity, but they have also said it has come into physical contact with them. When he is spotted, he walks away into the woods at speeds faster than a human can run. It likes to grab onto people's arms as well. Who or what is the man in the corn mask and why is he hanging around? For that answer, we might need to dig a little deeper into the background of this land. The area was once Native American land and it belonged to the Eslin people. I hope I'm saying that right. And if I'm saying that wrong, please let me know. The Eslin tribe was a small indigenous tribe that lived in the area. Once the Spanish missionaries began to spring up in the area, the tribe was forced into doing slave labor, building new settlements for the Spanish. The children of the village were baptized by the Spanish priests and then kidnapped from the village and used as child laborers in other mission communities. A few descendants of this tribe still live in Monterey area today, and the tribe was also famous for making masks out of corn husks. To the Eslin people, only important tribes members could wear a corn husk mask in their rituals. Shamans and warriors were ones that were most commonly allowed to don the masks. It was also believed that the mask would bring the wearer closer to the spirit world and it made their spirit become one with the land. If a tribesman was strong enough, they might even be able to escape death itself and come back to the area that they passed away on. Keep that history in mind as we talk about the Cornmass Man. The story of sightings of the Cornmass Man at Fernwood Campground starts several years ago when a campground manager had a man come into the office complaining that there was a large shadow of a man that stood outside his tent just watching him. Once the man woke up enough to see the shadow was still there, the camper jumped out of the tent to confront him, only to find literally nothing on the other side. It was as if the shadow completely vanished silently. He began to look around the campsite and said he suddenly saw a man with a misshapen head walking into the woods faster than any man can walk. The employee tried to brush it off and told the man he was probably dreaming, but he would keep an eye out anyway overnight. 
The very next morning, the same employee had four more campers make the same claim that a tall, strangely shaped shadow stood outside their tent for a long time. When the men all scrambled out of their tents to confront the person on the other side, they saw it silently and quickly walking off into the woods. This was all happening between 2 and 3 o'clock in the morning. So the employee said that he would stay up all night and walk around and check that there was no one prowling around. The next morning, he resigned from his post, leaving a note simply saying, I saw him. He saw me. He wants us to leave. He says go. Close Fernwood. Ever since then, many campers and locals alike have seen the corn masked man in the woods. Many of the locals have begun to accept the corn masked man as fact. So if you want to try to go camping at Fernwood, you might just want to keep a flashlight by your sleeping bag just in case you get a visit from the corn masked man. Camping with stories like that is way too scary for me, so I decided to cut our little adventure short and we're moving on to the next one. Now that we've left that scary story behind, we're going to be moving on to Mount Madonna County Park. This one can't be that bad, right? I mean, oh wait, it, it has a child ghost that lurks around there? Oh darn. <sighs> okay, well, I'll brave it for you guys. It's not like I got any sleep last time when we were hanging around looking for the corn masked man, but uh, <laughs> all right, let's find out what scary story this one is. <clears throat> Mount Madonna County Park is 4,605 acres and is located in the Santa Cruz Mountain Range. It is mainly a redwood forest in the higher elevations and an oak woodland in the lower elevations. Santa Cruz Valley is to the east of the park and Monterey Bay is to the west. The Oholan Indians hunted and harvested in this area. Today it is a county park and there are four campgrounds on it with over 100 different campsites, 17 RV sites, and yurts available. Activities include hiking, equestrian trails, and an archery range. The amphitheater can be reserved for weddings and other special events as well. While this sounds like a lovely area, if you look into the shadows of the trees, you might just spot a resident ghost that haunts the park. The ghost of an eight-year-old girl dressed in a fluffy white dress has been seen in many different areas of the park. The ghost is believed to be Sarah Alice Miller. In the late 1800s, this area was owned by her father, Henry Miller. Henry was one of the richest men in the country at the time, and he bought the property as a summer home, retreat, and ranch area. Henry was known as the Cattle King of the West, and he owned 1.25 million acres of land, and he owned over a million head of cattle. He made most of his money from feeding the miners and sending his meat to the mining camps. All things were looking up for the family until an accident caused great sadness. His eight-year-old daughter was his pride and joy. Though she loved to dress up in really girly dresses, she also had a tomboy streak and she loved to ride her horses. On June 14, 1879, while she was out riding, her horse got his hoof stuck in a gopher hole and tripped, throwing Sarah to the ground. Then the horse fell on top of her, crushing her to death. Some versions of the story say she broke her neck on impact. Either way, she did pass away on the property due to a horse riding accident. Henry Miller passed away in 1916 and his property was then sold. The family's summer mansion home burned down in 1810 and then in 1927, the county was able to turn it, the area into the park that it is today. The old ruins of the Miller home are still in the park and this is where people see a lot of ghostly activity. People have claimed to see Henry walking around the ruins of the old home. He he has also been seen out on trails and he's always dressed in period clothing so people think he's misplaced and then he vanishes. Some people think it's a sad story like he's still looking for his daughter Sarah. The most seen spirit in the area is Sarah. A little girl in white has been seen many times playing in the ruins of the old home. Hikers on trails have claimed to have seen a young girl in white riding a horse and then she just disappears from sight. Sarah has also been seen walking along roadways at night. 
She has even gotten into the back seat of cars attempting to get rides from people. Some have said that she has even gotten into the back seat without permission, and while someone is driving, they simply look in the mirror and see a little girl in white sitting in the back. And then when they slam on their brakes to stop the car and look back, she is gone. And that, to me, creeps me out. That's like that um, the hitchhiking ghost. That always has freaked me out. But I've never heard of a hitchhiking ghost being a child before, so that is very interesting. Campers have also said that they've woken up to find hoof prints and child footprints in the mud around their tents, when the entire night they've heard nothing. A child ghost always scares me to the core, but this one also makes me a little sad. Since it seems that she was able to bring her horse with her to the afterlife, I am glad that she is able to go for as many trail rides as she wants. It's time to move on up the coast to Antioch because now we are going to the Black Diamond Mines Regional Preserve. It is located in Northern California near Mount Diablo and it is part of the East Bay Regional Park District. The Black Diamond Mine land is located on land that was home to three Native American tribes, the Chumpin, Volvan, and Umpan tribes. And I know I said those wrong and I am so sorry. Mexican and American settlers used the land for ranching in the late 1700s until coal was discovered in the 1860s. Coal mining was productive until the early 1900s. Five coal mining towns developed. In the 1920s to the 1949, underground mining of sand was profitable. Not much remains of the mining towns, but bare patches of ground and mining debris. There is a historic cemetery called Rose Hill Cemetery. People buried in the cemetery include children who died in epidemics, women who died of childbirth, and men who died in mining disasters, and of course, men that just got a little too drunk and decided to shoot one another. Because it wouldn't be the old west without that one. Today, the preserve is mostly a day-use area. However, there are two camping areas. The Star Mine Group Camp Area for educational groups of up to 35 people in a group. And Stewartville Backpacking Camp that is available for the general public to use. And that is up to 20 campers at a time. There are 65 miles of trails in the area and the area is popular for viewing wildlife and wildflowers. There are two visitor centers. The Sydney Flat Visitor Center is an original coal mining building. The center has displays of photographs and artifacts from the 1800s and early 1900s. The Greenhouse Visitor Center is in an underground chamber that was excavated in the 1920s. Here you can see artifacts and other displays about life during the 19th century coal mining and the 20th century sand mining. 90 minute tours are given of the Hazel Atlas mine that provided silica sand for making glass items. As you would imagine, an old mining area would have its many ghosts. But one thing I was not expecting to read about was the story of the White Witches of the Black Diamond Mines. The first spirit is that of a woman named Sarah North. Sarah was not a religious woman by any means. She was widowed to Noah North, the founder of the former town Northville. She was also the town's midwife. She helped deliver many babies in the town and the neighboring town of Clayton. One day, she was going to Clayton to deliver a baby when she tragically was killed when she was thrown from her buggy. She had told her children that because she was not religious, she did not want any funerals. But the town went against her wishes and gave her one anyway. On the day of her funeral, a bad storm came in out of nowhere, forcing them to postpone the funeral to the next day. They tried again and had another bad storm come in. Only this time, the livestock started charging through town, causing a stampede. After this, the townspeople gave up and stopped trying to give her a funeral, and they decided to just bury her body at Rose Hill Cemetery without all the pomp and circumstance. Ever since then, her spirit has been seen dressed in white, wandering throughout the graveyard. The town began to call her a white witch due to the storms that came up when they tried to go against her wishes and due to the sudden sightings of a woman in white that now still haunt the graveyard. Another woman who was thought to be a witch was named Mary. In the 1970s, Mary was a nanny to many children, but all the children she cared for ended up dying of illness. And because of this, of course, she was accused of witchcraft. She was hung from a tree after the neighbors looked through her belongings and found what they thought was a journal with sorcery rituals written inside. She is seen today dressed in white wandering around the old mining areas and she is believed to haunt the area where she was hung.
Hey guys, I just wanted to take a quick time out and ask you a question. Did you know that one in 10 people have dyslexia? You might even have it and not know it. Dyslexia is a learning disability that affects reading, spelling, and sometimes math, but it has nothing to do with low intelligence. I know because Einstein himself had it. Oh, and I have it too. Many people go undiagnosed, but it is important that you know the signs so that you can get help right away. The faster you know your child has it, the faster you can start doing things differently so that they can start thriving in school. And if you're an adult who also might have it, remember, you are never too old to ask for help. Please go to dyslexia.org to find out more or my website, historicallyhaunted.net, and click on the information about dyslexia tab. Okay, back to the show. Moving on to number six is the Morgan Territory Regional Preserve. It is located near Mount Diablo as well, and it is in the East Bay Region Park District. The park is within the land of the Volvan Native American Nation. The Spanish explored the East Bay in the late 1700s, and many Native Americans either were killed by disease or their lives were forever changed due to the mission springing up in the area. The territory is named after Jeremiah Morgan. He came to California in 1849 to mine gold. He stayed a short time and then left for Iowa. He returned in 1853 with his family and started a ranch in the area. Today, park activities include hiking, horseback riding, picnicking, and camping. The camp is a backpacking camp. In the spring, more than 90 species of wildflower can be found. At the very top of Mount Diablo, you can see Mount St. Helena to the north and the Sierras to the east. If you go camping in this area, keep your eyes out for the ghostly apparitions of lost lumberjacks wandering the old road area. Also, the dark entity of that of an old western desperado named Joaquin Marietta, who was also known as El Dorado. Doing my research, I found two different versions of this story. Mostly white people assumed that Joaquin Marietta was an evil man who committed horrendous crimes and murdered a lot of people. And then there was another angle where some people thought of him as more like the the Mexican uh, Robin Hood type, where he wasn't as brutal as everyone thought he was. And also, he was the inspiration for Zorro. And as we all know, Zorro was a very good person and he was always wrongfully accused of things. So it's hard to know which version to believe. But for this ghost story, I'm just going to tell it like the urban legend that's out there. So Joaquin Marietta was the leader of what they called the Five Joaquins. And apparently they were brutal men who murdered many people in robberies. And they also were cattle and Mustang wrestlers. One of the biggest robberies was a wagon full of gold that his men took by ambushing a stagecoach while it was on its way to San Francisco. The gang was being pursued and they were forced to bury the box of gold in the area. That is today the Morgan Territory Regional Preserve. The gold was never recovered and no one knew what happened to the case. That is why many people think the dark entity is actually the ghost of El Dorado forever wandering the area looking for his lost gold. Due to the belief that he was so evil in life, many people who have seen this ghost say he has a dark oppressive energy about him and sometimes he follows you back to your camp. So if you want to go on a treasure hunt in this area, just keep in mind that El Dorado might just be out to get you if you find his gold before he does. While summer camps are great and a lot of people have fond memories of them, I've got to admit there is always something extremely creepy about them as well. But I think number seven on our list takes the cake. It's called Camp Boothin and it's found in Fairfax and Marin County. Today, Camp Boothin is officially known as the Boothin Youth Center, and it has been a Girl Scout summer camp since 1948 in Marin County, just north of San Francisco. The original owner of the property was Henry B. Boothin. He came to San Francisco in the 1870s and became wealthy in the West Coast steel industry and through real estate opportunities. He used some of his wealth to help underprivileged children and to combat tuberculosis. In 1905, he allowed some of his land in Fairfax to be used as a convalescent home for women and children. He named it Hill Farm, and it was home to 30 patients, but up to 60 in the summer months. After the 1906 earthquake and fire that ravaged San Francisco, there was a tuberculosis epidemic 
epidemic due to the large amount of dust and ash that filled the air. In 1910, a new convalescent home for women and children was added. The farmhouse was torn down and a new manor house was built to house 40 patients with deep sleeping porches and an outdoor dining room. At this same time, a new sanatorium was opened on the property to serve women in the first stages of tuberculosis. The last building to be constructed was the Stone House in 1919. It was built for professional and business women to recuperate after tuberculosis illness. After a cure was found for tuberculosis, Boothin was abandoned. In 1948, one building at Boothin was offered to the Girl Scouts. A few years later, the manor house was made available to them, and by 1955, the entire property was offered to the Girl Scouts. They changed the name to Henry E. Boothin Youth Center, and the Girl Scouts continue to have summer camps at the center. While the Youth Center today sounds like a really fun camp, I think it would be hard for anyone to overlook the fact that they are staying the night inside a tuberculosis hospital. While every summer camp has its resident ghost story, the stories at Camp Boothin might hold more weight in the facts to back up the claims department. Inside the stone house, the now dorm rooms that were once the main tuberculosis hospital, there have been claims of a phantom nurses walking up and down the hallways at night. One has been seen many times pushing a cart down the hallway only to disappear before the girl's very eyes. Sounds of footsteps and disembodied voices echo down the halls. Campers and counselors alike have said to see people peering down at them from the windows and the porches above. One account comes from MarinMagazine.com from an article titled, Marin Mystery, Is Fairfax's Camp Booth and Haunted? In the article, it talks of a man named Doug Paulo who was chaperoning his daughter's troop when a storm blew in on the day they were meant to leave and they had to stay one more night at the stone house alone for all of the other campers had gone home already. While they were staying, they heard a door slam on its own and reported lights in different locations turning on and off on their own all night long. Also, they heard movement downstairs as if someone was rearranging the furniture. They also saw someone moving through a window in a room that was locked. It sounds like to me that the Girl Scouts that go to Camp Boothin are sharing the space with the nurses that are still going about their rounds. And also, one thing's for sure, if these girls have prior knowledge of this being an old tuberculosis hospital before they go, they are definitely braver than I am. Since I'm too old to be a Girl Scout anymore, I think we're going to pass up Camp Boothin and move on to Sonoma County. Sonoma County is not only famous for their wines, but it's also famous for the Jack London Historic State Park. Jack London was born in San Francisco on January 12, 1876. Eventually, his family settled in Oakland, California, and he was quite the adventurer in his youth. He experienced sea voyages and traveled to the Yukon Territory in Canada during the Gold Rush. He came back to Northern California and began his career as a writer. By the time he was 30, he was famous for writing Call of the Wild and The Sea Wolf. He enjoyed riding in the outdoors, so he often traveled north of the Bay Area and spent his time along the Russian River and in Sonoma County. He bought a ranch near Glen Haven in Sonoma County. From 1910 to 1913, he oversaw the construction of his dream house on the ranch. He named it the Wolf House. He named his farm Beauty Ranch, and he purchased a neighboring land and moved to the ranch to live year-round in 1911. He and his wife lived on a small farmhouse that was already on property until the Wolf House was furnished. Unfortunately, just before they were set to move in, the Wolf House burned to the ground. London remained living on the ranch until his death on November 22, 1916. He was only 40 years old. Jack London State Historic Park provides two free self-guided tours, the Wolf House tour with a one and a half hour walk from the museum to the ruins of his old home. It includes a stop at Jack and his wife Charmin London's gravesite. You can also learn about Jack London's farming techniques through a one hour informative walk called Beauty Ranch Tour. This tour begins at the cottage and includes stops at the winery ruins barns and pig palace, silos and smokehouse. There's also specialty tours available for an additional fee. While you're on one of these mini tours, make sure you keep an eye out for Jack's ghost. While Jack was growing up, his mother was a spiritualist in San Francisco. She was said to be channeling the spirit of Black Hawk himself. Since his mother was so into the spiritual world, it would not be a far cry to believe that Jack believed in it even a little bit. For after Jack passed away, his wife began to see his ghost everywhere. 
Jack has also been seen today in the ruins of his old home that he wanted so badly to move into. He has also been seen walking among the rubble while whistling a merry tune. The sound of talking and laughter have also been heard as if there's a party going on, but there's no one around. The ghost of his wife has also been seen on the property, but mostly in the graveside area. There have been so many reported sightings of seeing Jack. At least he's a friendly spirit, so we don't have to worry about that. But it's also sad because he just lingers around the place that he wanted to live at so badly. Our second to last stop on this road trip tour takes us directly to the beach. McCarricker State Park is located three miles north of Fort Bragg in Mendocino County. At one time, this park was part of the Mendocino Indian Reservation and later owned by the Union Lumber Company. The park opened up in 1952 and the land was added along the 10-mile beach until 1977. The park has a variety of habitats, including beaches, bluffs, headlands, dunes, forests, and wetlands. It is popular with campers, hikers, joggers, equestrians, bicyclists, and even surfers, which I don't know how because that water is literally freezing. I'm gonna take a pause and be real with everybody for a second. When everyone pictures California, what do you think of? White, sandy, warm beaches, right? Well, that's only in the Southern California. You start going up north, instantly turns to just fog, cold all the time, the water's frigid, and also the white sand turns into coarse black sand that is not very comfortable to walk on. But don't let that discourage you from going because it is still beautiful. Visitors can follow a boardwalk trail out to the bluffs and watch sea lions on a rocks. The bluffs are also a great place to search for gray whales during their migration seasons. The visitor center has a gray whale skeleton and many other displays. And also the old little town of Fort Bragg is so cute. They've got all kinds of great shops these days, like an old fashioned toy shop, uh, crystals store, um, awesome little surf shop. They also have Cowlicks, which is a very famous ice cream parlor. As you can tell, I've been there before and yeah, I really do like it even though it's cold. I just have a thing about cold. I hate cold weather, but I always brave it because the area is still very gorgeous. Today, McCarricker State Park extends about nine miles along the coast, including Glass Beach. This beach is extremely famous and this beach was once the site of the town dump. People would literally just pull their trucks up and dump everything they had into the ocean. But now that they've stopped that, it's turned it into a very like historic site. And now the whole area is covered with sea smoothed glass and it's colored fragments and pottery shards. Since it is now part of the state park system, visitors are prohibited from taking the glass from the beach. Don't take the glass from the beach is what I'm going to say. It used to be a lot fuller of glass because everyone kept stealing it. It's slowly going away. It's gorgeous. Leave the glass where it is. You can make your own sea glass from a tumbler you can get on Amazon. So if you want it that badly, make it yourself from your own glass. Please don't take the glass from the beach. <laughs> Here's where the ghosts come in. The most used trails is a boardwalk that goes along the bluffs and throughout the forest nearby. This boardwalk has been the spot where several ghosts have been sighted. Ghosts from the old lumber mill days to Victorian style dressed women walking along with a parasol. Cold spots on warm days and the sound of footsteps behind you make you turn around to find no one there. Also the sound of children playing and laughing just out of sight in the heavy fog. This place has a very weird spiritual energy to it, and I do not doubt that it is haunted. So keep your eyes peeled for ghosts while you go and look at the bluffs. Our road trip is finally almost over. I'm at the last spot on our list, and that is Fort Humboldt State Park. Fort Humboldt looks over Humboldt Bay, south of the city of Eureka. The fort was established in January 1853 to help with conflicts between Native Americans and gold miners and to help other settlers that were coming into the area looking for gold. Gold was discovered on the Trinity River in May 1849. By 1857, the fort had 14 redwood and plaster buildings and a parade ground. This fort became headquarters for the Humboldt Military District. Its most famous resident was young Captain Ulysses S. Grant in 1854. However, he did not like the fort's isolation and resigned his commission as commanding officer of Company F after five months. 
He returned to his home to farm, later rejoining the army during the Civil War. The fort was abandoned in 1870. The land was purchased by W.S. Cooper family in 1893. Miss Laura Cooper donated the land to the city of Eureka in the early 1920s to honor Ulysses S. Grant's service as the fort's quartermaster. The city gave the land to the state and it became a state historic park in 1963. Today, the state park serves to tell the history of the area. Visitors can learn about Native Americans of the area, military life in the 1800s, and lodging during the 19th and 20th centuries. Only the hospital remains of the original buildings, and it is now a historical museum. In addition, the park includes a logging museum and an open-air display of logging equipment, such as the Dolber Steam Donkey and two lumber company locomotives. The fort itself seems to have a lot of paranormal activity. The old hospital is haunted by many ghosts, but one of them is thought to be a bad omen. It is believed that one of the ghosts at the hospital is an old post commander who passed away from malaria in 1859. It is said that if you see him looking out at you through the windows of the old hospital area, you will die within a year. Cold spots in the area and disembodied footsteps and voices have been heard. Shadow figures dart among the trees. Heavy objects have been seen and heard being drugged across the floor of the old hospital and the sounds of things being dropped on their own. Lights turning on and off is also a common occurrence. One of the most scary encounters comes from a Facebook post that was left on a Facebook page called Paranormal California. The post was from a woman who said her and her husband were walking back to their car at dark. They approached the car only to see what looked like a silhouette of a man sitting on the hood of their brand new car. Her husband got angry and ran over to the car to yell at the person to get off his car. Only when he got close enough to the thing that was on his car, the man turned around and ran back to his wife and dragged her back to the park that they had just left. When his wife got a good look at her husband's face, it was white as a sheet, and she said that he was so terrified of what he saw. He said that it was not a person at all. It was a creature of some kind, and it had long teeth and misshapen eyes. And he growled, you're next, at her husband when he got close. This is what made him turn tail and run, and I don't blame him. If you go camping in this area, keep an eye open, or maybe you should just keep them closed. Hope you all enjoyed this fun little road trip with me as we explore some of the haunted campgrounds in California. This made my list of places to go visit grow. With every episode I do, my list just gets longer and longer. Thank you all so much for your support for the show and especially during this crazy time. It means the world to me. Please go check out my website at historicallyhaunted.net and add me on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter at Historically Haunted. I have all those links and the link to my Patreon page down below. I can't wait to be back next time. Stay healthy, everybody. Bye. And I don't know about you, but I am suddenly craving a s'more.